Hi, this is Mark Lewis, author of Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, and more recently, The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease. And we're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at addiction and recovery, now with less dogma and more bite. This is episode 17. If you're new, welcome. I hope you like us. Today I'm very excited to invite two rebels onto our show. You heard Mark Lewis at the top of the show. If you've been a regular to Rebellion Dogs blogs and podcasts, you know I'm a fan of Mark's first book, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain. You see, Mark is a drug addict, and yes, We've read memoirs before, tell-alls of the drama, disappointment, and despair uh, by the addicts themselves. We've heard these memoirs before, but this time the addict is also a neuroscientist who adds a neurotransmitter play-by-play of the cause and effect between brain chemistry, thoughts, beliefs, and behavior. Memoirs of an Addicted Brain is gripping. Mark Lewis has a new book called The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease, and therein lies the rebellion. The addiction recovery infrastructure is largely tied to the addiction is a disease, disease of addiction model, a.k.a. a medical disorder, therefore, as a disease care for the inflicted falls strictly within the domain of the medical, psychiatric domain. If addiction is a bad habit, then Tony Robbins uh, can cure us with a few encouraging words, uh, or Oprah Winfrey. I'm oversimplifying uh, in a barstool philosopher kind of way. Uh, luckily for you, and I mean luckily for all of us, Mark Lewis is in the house. We're going to talk about his book, and you can hear from the author himself what he has to say. Then, of course, as always, I know some of you will have something to say on the topic, and boom, now we've got a conversation going on. So that'll be great. We'll look forward to your comments at the end of the show. So that's one of the rebels, Mark Lewis versus the dogmatic obedience to the imperfect jargon of the medical infrastructure. And he isn't calling for a wholesale abandoning of the medical treatment of addiction. I think he just finds it unscientific and frankly unhealthy to promulgate a language around addiction to the point that it becomes sacred. We must always be open-minded. We must always courageously move forward. Of course, people have a tendency to resist change. Sometimes this resistance comes in the form of ridicule, and sometimes a more overt aggression is how resistance plays out. Our other rebel today also promotes change and has recently come up against ridicule and aggression. Greta Vosper doesn't come from institutionalized medicine or science. Greta comes from institutionalized spirituality. She's a minister with the United Church of Canada. She's an atheist and an author of two books, which, like Mark's first book, I've touched on before, With or Without God, 
Why the Way We Live is More Important Than What We Believe was a 2008 bestseller. Her follow-up book was Amen, What Prayer Can Mean in a World Beyond Belief. In case you thought you heard that wrong, Greta Vosper is a minister of a Christian church and she doesn't believe in an intervening, interfering deity. She treats the Bible as mythology. She practices and promotes what she calls post-theistic Christianity. From what I see from her congregation and other liberal Christians is that this idea, post-theistic Christianity, is to rally behind deeds and humanity and not so much uh, behind doctrine. You might see this as an untenable contradiction, but a growing number of modern Christians do not. Vosper wrote in With or Without God, I do find it hard to imagine that preserving an institution for preservation's sake itself is anything more than an enormous waste of time and energy. But I do think that the church is well-placed to bring about some significant changes in the world, and change in the world is desperately needed. That's Greta Vosper's With or Without God. We may all know someone in ministry that will concede that Noah's Ark is a metaphor and that the Adam and Eve story shouldn't be taken literally. We likely all know adherence to one of the three Abrahamic monotheistic faiths that go to the mosque, the synagogue, or church for the community, the charity, the family tradition. But if we ask them, they aren't playing nice now because they believe in an afterlife or because they take their holy book to literally be the word of Yahweh. But how much latitude do we, can we, should we extend to those who speak from the pulpit? Greta Vosper has been out of the closet as an atheist since 2001, but only now is her job on the line. Here's what the Toronto Star reported August 5th. An ordained United Church of Canada minister who believes in neither God nor the Bible said Wednesday she is preparing to fight an unprecedented attempt to boot her from the pulpit for her beliefs. In an interview with the West Hill Church, Reverend Greta Vosper said, Congregants support her view that how you live is more important than what you believe in. Is the Bible really the word of God? Was Jesus a person, she said? It's mythology. We built a faith tradition upon it, which shifted to find belief more important than how we lived. Reverend David Allen, executive secretary of the Toronto Conference, said he took various concerns about Vosper to the church's executive, which decided it wanted to investigate her fitness to be a minister. In the Vancouver Sun, they said, what if she were, say, a minister in the venerable Unitarian denomination, where anti-theistic views are commonplace and commonly ignored by the secular media? What if she was just speaking as an individual? Liberal United Church of Canada officials, since they pride themselves on being welcoming to everyone, have never publicly taken on Vosper or suggested she stop accepting the money and benefits of her denomination. If you have a strong, visceral feeling one way or another about 
Greta Vosper, you're not alone. I find the blogosphere is ripe with opinion, support, hostility, unsolicited advice, comes from the most religious and ardent atheists. Yes, fundamentalist atheists and fundamentalist Christians are united in their outrage towards Vosper's stance. While Vosper's congregation is behind what she's doing, and I think those are the only people whose opinion really matters, many of a more militant faith or atheism see her as a disgrace to their own noble cause. So there are two rebels that we are celebrating today. I assure you this show will offer you some mind-expanding reading, if nothing else. Many of you know I host another radio show, IndyCan Radio, devoted to under-the-radar, independent, or emerging music. In that show, I interview artists and industry insiders, and the main focus is playing what's been tagged as the best music you've never heard. A few regulars have shaken a fist at me, bemoaning the fact that my free radio show has cost them dearly year after year in new music that they buy and new festivals that they attend. Uh, Conversely, if as a result of this show, listeners find themselves buying a book a month more than they intended, uh, I don't know about you, but one of my great joys about consuming art or nonfiction books is I'm always making a recommended list to other people who I think would love this book or an exhibition I'm seeing or a musical artist. It's a great joy to share that which has made a positive impact on me with other people I love. So if this uh, free radio is starting to cost you money, hey, I'm just a link in the chain. Uh, Someone recommended these books to me first. I'm just passing it on. On that note, let me share something that I'm reading right now. This is from Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. I've got the audio book from Blackstone Audio. Here's a little snippet of what David Gladwell has to say about this book. I want to explore two ideas. The first is that much of what we consider valuable in our world arises out of these kinds of lopsided conflicts because the act of facing overwhelming odds produces greatness and beauty. And second, that we consistently get these kinds of conflicts wrong. We misread them. We misinterpret them. Giants are not what we think they are. The same qualities that appear to give them strength are often the sources of great weakness. And the fact of being an underdog can change people in ways that we often fail to appreciate. It can open doors and create opportunities and educate and enlighten and make possible what might otherwise have seemed unthinkable. We need a better guide to facing giants. Anyway, let's meet some rebels, starting with Mark Lewis. I've been keeping tabs on Mark's journey since I found out about him from his first Random House book, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain. In August of 2015, he was in Toronto doing some press regarding the biology of desire. And let me share with you my conversation with Mark when he visited my Toronto office. Hi, I'm Mark Lewis, and I'm the author of a couple of books on addiction. The first one's called Memoirs of an Addicted Brain. A neuroscientist examines 
his former life, my former life, on drugs. And the second one, just released, is called The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease, on Rebellion Dogs Radio. Mark, your newest book challenges the disease model. That's been done before. Mm -hmm. I mean, when all this started, it was before there was a disease model. There was a moral failing model. Right. You know, some not conspiracy theorists, but uh, cynics would say that the AMA came out with the disease model to gain dominion over the treatment of addiction. Mm -hmm. Is that true at all? Or are they a villain in some way? Or is that how it played out? <laughs> well, I guess so. My brother's a doctor. He's a, he's a lovely man. I wouldn't say villain. <laughs> But, um, but psychiatry is a funny subdiscipline, right? Because mm -hmm. it's medical, of course, but they do have a kind of colonial tendency to take over mental, quote, health issues and say these are medical issues. Right. And um, they treat often uh, mental health problems with drugs, with medications, and they call them diseases because that's what doctors do. Right. They put, they put things in boxes and categories, and then they decide that if you have this particular set of symptoms, then this is the label, and this is the treatment, and that's how... And so, yes, they have taken over this, this whole world of difficulties in how people live their lives. Mm -hmm. I, I think so. Yeah, I always find, uh, you know, they've been criticized for... Uh, being more fascinated by disease than patients. Result uh, for a test that tests positive is that you have the disease, and testing negative is that you don't have the disease, right. which is kind of the opposite way that the patient would look at those <laughs> test results, yeah. positive and negative. Disease as a metaphor, mm -hmm. great, but disease as you know, the basis on which everything's going to be treated. There's certain problems. Other words have been used. An allergy, mm -hmm. a, a malady, moral failing, a phenomena. I like the word phenomena because you can identify in yourself addiction and you can identify the other side of addiction, even the word recovery. We've got to wonder if that's the best mm -hmm. word. Uh, so we can identify it in ourselves. Mm -hmm. We can even see it in others. Mm -hmm. But you can't. I can't get it on a blood test. I can't prove to you I'm an addict. You can't prove to me that's you're right. an addict. That's right? right. There's no. There's no test for it. Yeah, that's right. Even uh, MRI stuff shows that there are changes in the brain, mm -hmm. but it, that doesn't prove a connection. That doesn't prove we've identified a potential for addiction in a young person. We can't Especially. do any of those things that diseases mm -hmm. we can do, right? That's right. There's no norm against which to measure. I mean, well, the brain is changing massively anyway, especially in the adolescent years. Yes. Do you know what? One of my favorite factoids is: uh, in early adolescence, you are losing thirty thousand synapses per second. Wow. Across the cortex. Yeah. Per second. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of change. That's a lot of restructuring. Yeah. I mean, there are so many. That like it's overwhelming to a lay person just to read about neurotransmitters and what they're doing. Yeah, it's very complicated yeah. stuff. Yeah, you, you get this image in your head of uh, Frankenstein's laboratory. It's really hard to reconcile the fact that there's the mushy gray thing, jelly-like thing, which is what makes us human, what makes us beautiful and aware yeah. and conscious and connected. But that's the way it is. Right. We are biological matter. Uh, and some people separate out, uh, they don't deal with 
addiction as a brain uh, disease, but a mind disease, uh, a behavioral thing. That addiction, that compulsion, takes over your mind. But then you're doubling down on the terminology problem, right? Mm -hmm. They're calling it a mind disease. Right. Because, I mean, I think to keep things a little bit sane, we want to say that disease has got something to do with bodies. Right. And, yeah. we, don't, and we don't want to be Cartesian, Cartesian dualists and say, well, there's the mind over here and the body over here, and somehow they're connected through some little portal. I mean, right. People don't think that way anymore, yeah. hopefully. Yeah, well, at least, at least not in science, they don't. It, it's kind of an Eastern philosophy way of seeing things more than a Western scientific way of seeing things. Is e that fair? Eastern philosophies, like Buddhist philosophy, see that there is some kind of entity like a soul or like uh, that reincarnates or goes across bodies. But most of us don't see it that way, at least not literally. But going back to your previous question about these words like malady and allergy mm -hmm. and moral failing, mm -hmm. to me they just all sound old-fashioned. Right. Yeah, right? I agree. And and none of them, you go, you go that's it. No. I identify no. with that single We've word. We've been there. Yeah. And the moral failing part, I mean, obviously it still comes back, uh, as you were saying before, in, in our discourse. It's hard. I, I was just in downtown Vancouver, in the mm -hmm. east side. Mm -hmm. and. There are several city blocks where a lot of addicts are spread out with all their belongings and they look like hell yeah. and they're shooting up on the street. Yeah. And it's really aversive. Yeah. It's really, and, you know, I, I have been an addict and I know lots of addicts yeah. and some of my best friends are addicts. Yeah. But this is aversive. This is not yeah. nice to look at. Yeah. So the moral failing part keeps, you know, the stigma part does come back to our, to our consciousness. And yet... We also recognize when we take a minute to think about it, is that people got that way for a reason. Right. And they've had really shitty lives. And a lot of them have spent their entire childhoods in, in foster homes and have not got the, the societal or financial or familial resources to have built a life that provides them with other opportunities or other choices. So the moral failing stuff doesn't seem to work anymore when we think about the problem. And the big... Uh, argument for bringing in the disease model is it would alleviate yes. the shame yes. of addiction. Yes. And I, I don't believe that has happened. I don't believe addicts feel less ashamed. Yeah. And I don't believe the stigma is gone. Uh, who wants to hire a porn addict for your daycare? Right. Who wants to have <laughs> disease a, or not? A, you know, a cocaine addict running your financial portfolio, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, the stigma is still there long Absolutely. after it was supposed to be eradicated by this disease model. You know, I, I totally agree. And it, not only that, it, I mean, you could say it may take the edge off for some people. I can't help it. I'm an addict. I've got a disease. And therefore, that's why I do these, these disgraceful things. But most of the addicts I've talked to, and I've talked to lots. Mm -hmm. I've got a lot, a lot of um, members in my blog community. I talk to a lot of people. And they don't like the... They do, being told you have a chronic brain disease that makes you do nasty things is not really good news. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just not good news. Uh, people don't like to feel that way. And it precludes, it forecloses on the sense of opportunity for getting out of it. Right. Or just growing out of it. Yeah. If you've got a chronic disease, you don't just grow out of it. Yeah. What I liked about your first book, you would talk about your own addiction from addict to addict. Uh, mm -hmm. discussion, right? Mm -hmm. The yeah. experience, right? Yeah. The thrill, the uh, romance yeah. of I'm going to get high, I'm going to get high, here it comes, yeah. right? 
then you would describe it from a neurological point of view, what was actually going on chemically. I'd never seen that before, right? I've seen one or I've seen the other, yes. but to blend it into the same chapter was a, a remarkable thing. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, it's beautiful. It's one of a kind. And in your new book, you uh, it isn't purely anecdotal. You use case histories. Yeah. And you also make some scientific arguments for why we should move on from one model to the other. Yeah. Um, if we can, I would like you to uh, read from uh, one of your stories. Uh, maybe you could just shortly uh, describe the uh, case histories you use here. Mm -hmm. And then I would like you to read the last paragraph of uh, Donna's Secret Identity. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Sure. I try to use the same general formula in this book, the second mm -hmm. book, The Biology of Desire, integrating the brain story with the life story. Yeah. In a way, the brain stuff is less, I think it's less formidable. Uh, it's pretty easy. It's mm -hmm. a pretty easy you know, primer, I think. And the stories I found were, well, really fascinating to me, partly because they weren't my stories. Right. And I got to know these people, and yeah. I got to say, wow, you did that, and then that's what happened, and what happened next, and what was that like? For sure, and you can see you're an engaged listener mm -hmm. uh, in the way you depict their stories. And even someone who disagrees with you philosophically has got to enjoy these stories. I think so, too. Yeah. So but Some people just skip the brain bits and yeah, yeah, go just, through the stories. Exactly. So, so let's hear from Donna's story. How you concluded there was quite remarkable. So this was, Donna had a problem with, uh, I'm not reading yet, but this yep. is the background. She had a problem with, uh, with prescription narcotics, prescription opiates, and it got into a, uh, what was most serious for her was that she got them from, by stealing them from other people. Mm -hmm. Her relatives, her husband had serious back problems, he really needed them, and she would just help herself. And she had this capacity to split her personality in a way. She was a very, quote, good person, a very generous, helpful, productive member of her community. She, was a, uh, she did nursing with kids who had serious diseases, helped them and their families deal with their problems. And then at night, you know, she'd go be visiting relatives or friends and she'd, she'd, she'd uh, help herself to what was in the medicine chest. So what, what these, these seemingly conflicting, antagonistic aspects of her personality, she learned how to let them coexist. Mm -hmm. And that was a serious kind of problem for her. Yeah. She, it was almost like a, like a, a split personality, not quite, but she, she knew that this wasn't good what she was doing. She was able to live with it, able to keep going until finally she got busted. And she got busted because her in-laws actually put, set up a video camera and watched her go through their drawers and st steal their medications. Yeah, I, I, I just felt that, right? <laughs> the shame of that, right? right? And uh, she's in someone's suitcase, right? That's right, and, and she was stealing yeah. something from her yeah. cousin's suitcase. Yeah. And, and when those things came together, the family said, you are a drug it's addict. Intervention time, yeah. Yeah, and she couldn't, there was no way to squirm out of it. Yeah, yeah, so uh, just that uh, this is her talking, reflecting on this. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so she she did quit, and she got better. She's doing great now. And in this last paragraph of her chapter, I asked her if she felt she'd grown as an individual during her addiction and recovery. She laughed and told me that she's never felt so strong, so happy. Donna made it obvious that not only is addiction a developmental journey, but it's a journey that continues through the period of recovery. In fact, by the time I'd finished my interviews with Donna, 
the term recovery no longer made sense to me. Recovery implies going backward, becoming normal again. And it's a reasonable term if you consider addiction a disease. But many of the addicts I've spoken with, including Donna, see themselves as having moved forward, not backward, once they quit, or even while they were quitting. They often find they've become far more aware and self-directed than the person they were before their addiction. There's no easy way to explain this direction of change with the medical terminology of disease and recovery. Instead of recovering, it seems that addicts keep growing, as does anyone who overcomes their difficulties through deliberation and insight. And here she touches on something really important. I mean, there's a language that we are restored to sanity, that we recover. Yes. And, and that doesn't honor the fact that our addiction actually was a solution to a problem. We don't want to return to that rawness of not being able to cope in the world, right. of feeling incomplete. Right. Uh, and that's not what we want to, that wouldn't be recovery. That right. wouldn't be where we want to go. We want to go somewhere else with better coping mechanisms. Exactly. So. Like recovery, I mean, it's, it is entirely a medical term, and it's based on the idea that our physical organs have a state of equilibrium, right. a homeostatic state. Mm -hmm. You want your liver to stay the same. Mm -hmm. You don't want it to change a whole lot, yeah. right? Yeah. Same with your heart. Yeah. You want it to be the way it's always been. Right. Well, with your brain, it's entirely different. You don't want your brain to be back the way it was when you were 18 or when you were 21 or whatever it was. Yeah. It keeps developing. That's its job. Its job yeah. is to learn and evolve and adapt. And so recovery is just the wrong word. And, and it adds a qualitative thing to it. What's the quality of your recovery? I mean, yes. really, I mean, if you are whether you use the term clean and sober or something else, and yeah. you can go about contributing to society, your family, or or your passions, yeah. great. You know, we're all equal there. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. There's an egalitarian about that. But recovery is kind of a word where you go, well, where are you on the continuum of recovery? How, you know, I wouldn't want that person's recovery. Or, you know, it becomes a, you know, a, a very subjective word as well. Absolutely. And a normative one, one that, you know, that uh, is anchored by societal notions of what is the right way to be. Yeah. And that's got all kinds of other baggage with it. Right. And, right. For example, for some people, they need total abstinence. Yeah. And that's what they need. R exactly. And for other people, no, they can be social drinkers. That's right. And, and etc. They can have controlled usage. And there's the whole spectrum, including harm reduction, right. the extreme people can go on using and still lead much more happy and beneficial lives than they did before. So I get I get the use of the word recovery. I, I know what they mean. Yeah. We all know what they mean, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure, but it's still not a perfect word. So it's not the right word. It's yeah. just not quite the right word. Yeah, we're not there yet. No. There's something else I'd like you to read. So 176. Okay. I've got it sort of marked off. I think you really wrap up the whole idea of the desire idea versus the disease idea. Right, right. So this is a section in which the title of the section is Why Desire? Which really means, why do I call this book the biology of desire? Like, why not the biology of pleasure? Or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, in, in neural terms, that the part of our brain that does desire, that's, that, that mediates desire, is not the same as the part that mediates pleasure. These are different things. Mm -hmm. Desire isn't actually fun. Right. Pleasure is. Yeah, right? having desire for something. Like, like it, at the worst of our 
drinking or drug abuse. Yeah. Why would we continue? We're we're all we're doing is numbing the pain. We're yeah. not getting a kick out of it anymore. And even but with we're still desiring it. Yeah, that's right. And even with sexual desire, romantic mm-hmm. desire, the feeling of well, <laughs> you know, all those songs that we grew up with. It hurts to be in love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, desire yeah. itself isn't actually fun. It, yeah. it is what draws you to the thing that you expect to be fun, mm-hmm. to be in that person's embrace yeah. or to be in the embrace of this, this drug. So, so here I say uh, in this bit, um, so desire is, is really the big wheel in all our goal-directed activities, and addiction is no exception. The critical role of desire in the brain has been the focus of research in Barrage's lab for well over a decade. I, d- I described this guy a little bit in his, his uh, research, and he's a great, great researcher. Barrage was the first to argue that addiction is about wanting, not liking, desire, not pleasure, while the rest of the field has been catching up slowly. The low profile of pleasure in addiction explains why Natalie kept shooting heroin, Brian kept smoking meth, and Johnny kept drinking long after the enjoyment dimmed to an ember of its former glory, and why smokers are rarely heard to celebrate the pleasure they get from smoking, at least after the first cigarette of the day. Even the satisfaction afforded by relief doesn't remain in attention for long, but the drive to get that relief, to acquire it, especially when it's been out of reach for a while, takes on colossal proportions. Not that pleasure isn't important, There's a reason why all species of fruit have evolved to produce sugar, so that mammals will eat them and spread their seeds. Pleasure is great for triggering desire. I want more. But once that connection is made in Act 1, Scene 1, the audience turns its attention to almost almost exclusively to desire. The biology of desire not only helps us understand addiction, it helps us understand why addiction is not a disease why it is, rather, an unfortunate outcome of a normal neural mechanism that evolved because it was useful. Exactly. It just We're just like anyone else, only more so. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> and it, it explains why having the bottle in the brown paper bag on your way home, mm-hmm. it, you don't have the alcohol in your system yet, right, right. but you know it's coming. Yeah. Right, yeah. you know that the the cycle is already yeah. uh, gone. Right, you're past the point of no return. Oh yeah. Even though there's been no chemical interaction right. between the alcohol. Right. You're and launched. What it does. Yeah, exactly. And there's something that feels special about that: the mm-hmm. excitement, the anticipation. I mean, it's thrilling, and it, it's a bit hard to put into words. You can't necessarily say that that feeling isn't a good feeling, mm-hmm. because going after the thing that you know is going to make you feel better does feel good mm-hmm. but it's not quite the same as the pleasure of the flavor the feeling itself it's yeah. different it's anticipatory exactly and finally why is this a big deal why should we be talking about it who is uh, getting lost in the shuffle by just sort of leaning on this old modality of the disease model yeah who's getting lost in the shuffle a lot of people <clears throat> I I just um, I've recently started uh, doing a little bit of Skype-based counseling of addicts, something which I never thought I'd do because I've approached this from a scientific perspective, not a mm-hmm. clinical one. And I was talking to one guy who just got out of an incredibly expensive rehab center in California, a mm-hmm. uh, hundred thousand a month. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, someone's making a lot of money here. <laughs> money can't buy you love. No, and <laughs> and he was I mean he was aghast by. 
Yes, it was a lovely resort. Yes, they had a beautiful view of the ocean, great activities on the grounds, uh, lovely food, and so on and so forth. But the care was not what he needed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were leaving there in no better shape than they came in. Mm -hmm. They had addiction counselors, some of whom were not very well trained. They had uh, groups in which they sat around talking about the same things over and over, day after day. And they had this medical model, the big banner, the, uh, you know, the, the pennant over the door was, you, you know, this is a disease and you're here to get cured of this disease. But in fact, the only way the medical model intersected with their lives was that he got, a do- he got his prescription for Suboxone, right. which is buprenorphine, which is an opiate substitute. Yeah. And he left with it. Yeah. So now he's addicted to buprenorphine instead of heroin. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that's better. Yeah. It's a step in the right direction. Yeah. He's not breaking the law. Yeah. And he's not spending as much money, but he's still an addict. Yeah. And he knows it. Mm-hmm. So the disease model isn't helping him very much. And, right. it, and there's a lot of other people it's not helping either. Yeah. It, it, it's a, a lazy way to, to go about it just I think because so. we've always used this language. Yeah. I mean, meteorologists do it. They talk about the sun will rise at this time and set it. It doesn't rise or set. That's old biblical language. <laughs> but we are a little bit lazy with our language, aren't we? Absolutely. I mean, we really need to think about what it means. It's a great analogy. <laughs> Feel free to use it. Okay. Uh, so thanks for talking to us. Yeah, uh, good talk where can you. people get a hold of you? Well, come to my website. If you, if you Google Understanding Addiction, that's the name of the website. The URL is still www.memoirsofanaddictedbrain.com, the title of my first book. Yeah, the Twitter handle is Addicted Brains. Right, that's right. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've lost my password, so I can't even get on Twitter. <laughs> my whole computer crashed last week in Vancouver. I've lost everything. But okay. uh, anyway, but it's, it's easy to find. We've got some Twitter fans here. They'll be getting a hold of you to help you out. Thank you. Great. <laughs> okay. But it, it's easy to find me. Mark Lewis. Just You can just Google it. And Mark with you, a C. Yeah. Yep. You, you'll get to my website. Okay. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. Pretty cool, eh? Now, here's what he's up against. Uh, Dr. George Kube is an internationally recognized expert on alcohol and stress and the neurobiology of alcohol and drug addiction, he began his tenure as the director at the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism on January 27, 2014. The brain disease model of addiction is strongly supported as advocates claim by scientific evidence. The National Institute of Drug Abuse, the NIDA, their director, Dr. Nora Volko, is easily found on YouTube. HBO did a series on addiction, and Dr. Volko was one of the many articulate voices of modern advocacy for addicts and on addiction research. Both Volko and NIAA director, uh, Dr. Kube, advocate the idea of neurological research that paints addiction as a brain disease. While that's the popular view of neurologists, we have heard today that there is no consensus, that the story of addiction is ongoing, and we all have a vested interest in every rock being turned and every new idea being explored. Now, Greta. I talked to Greta Vosper 
when her tentative status for being fit for duty as the leader, as a leader at the United Church, was uh, making news. Greta made a good point that bringing this up now in this way, the powers that be, they've polarized the whole church. If they throw her out, people will leave in protest. And now, if they don't throw her out, people will leave the church in protest. So they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. It only stands to reason that preachers have a range from just doing their job barely atheist to some of it's true, some of it's not, all the way to literalists that, well, they defend every chapter and verse as being the word of the Lord. Uh, let me share with you a little of Greta's discussion with Mary Hines on CBC. Mary Hines does a show called Tapestry. Our site will link to the whole show, which I recommend you take in. Some of you will recall Tapestry did a show about AA that included three members of Beyond Belief Agnostics and Freethinkers group in Toronto uh, when their group was made world famous by a rogue inner group that broke from AA tradition of radical inclusion and delisted the agnostic groups based on intergroups made up rules that groups can't read a secular interpretation of AA's 12 steps and still call themselves an AA group. Plenty of people have opinions on one side or the other or whether they ought to or whether they not ought to, but there's no rule about it. Anyway, the fact that these groups were discriminated against did make front page news. And the good news for AA was it gave cause for Tapestry to look at what spirituality meant to all of AA. I'm going on enough about that. I'll, I'll link to that show, too, in case you've never heard it. But anyway, Mary Hines and Greta Vosper on a show on CBC Tapestry called Letting Go. Here we go. Your Twitter feed describes you as irritating the church into the 21st century. I think the question a lot of listeners would have for you is what kept you in the church at that point? You know, if your beliefs change to the point where um, you say, you know, scripture, I'm just not feeling this anymore, um, to the point where your website proclaims you as an atheist, what ties you to ministry in the United Church of Canada? I felt that what I was doing uh, in terms of ministry, not in terms of leading in this direction, but in terms of ministry was a very significant and integral part of many people's lives. Bringing individuals together into community, uh, exposing them to uh, material that can challenge them, that can transform them, that can inspire them, and then watching and supporting them through those moments of transformation, uh, that that's a very significant and important piece uh, for individuals and for community. And that's one of the concerns I have about the demise of the liberal church is that we're losing places where that can happen in a very healthy, fulfilling way. So I was committed to that. I'm loyal to the United Church of Canada. The United Church of Canada has done such incredible things over the course of its history. And But I think that the things that shine in the history of the United Church of Canada are those moments when we were about stepping outside of a prescribed box and saying, you know, it is right for women to be able to offer leadership and be recognized for their leadership in the church. And it is right for people who were divorced to be able to do that. And yes, we have to speak to the issue of abortion and, and then LGBTQ rights and all of those issues, one after the other after the other. And this, to me, 
is the next issue. This is the box that we need to get liberal denominations out of. So when you say this, are you talking about what belief is? I'm talking about what belief is, and I'm talking about the language that we use, which while most of my colleagues and and I was taught in this manner at theological college was most of my colleagues use a very metaphorical understanding for God. Um, they don't think of a supernatural divine being intervening in the affairs of human beings. But at the same time, that language, there's that complicity moment again. As soon as you use that language, you are giving permission, A, for that language to be used very differently, and B, for people to never get beyond a concrete understanding of it. But God is a very fickle God. I mean, when you use the word God, that's a fickle God. He can he can be used by anybody for anything. And so if we continue to use that word and name that being, whether we're talking metaphor or not, we're giving power to people who are using it for very ill purposes. So this might be a good moment to um, talk a bit about your congregation, to talk about West Hill United. Is this a church where the word God isn't used? Is it used in quotation marks? Tell me a little bit about what goes on at West Hill. Uh, I think that one of the reasons that West Hill is, has been able to survive and get this far down this post-theistic trail is because it still looks like church. You stand up, you sit down, you pass the plate, you sing the songs, you know, that it looks like church that way. But you won't hear any language that uh, that presupposes that there is a divine being. So we don't use the word God. We don't Really? You don't, we you don't, don't use, use the word God if, in if the church? If I do use the word God, it is always followed by which I mean dot, dot, dot. Uh, if I use the word sacred, by which I mean, like I, I will define these words because I don't want there to be an assumption out there that I mean something else by them. So you do not hear the word God. We do not privilege the scriptures. In fact, uh, several years ago, a committee responsible for it uh, decided that I didn't need to bring biblical passages into the service at all. We had been doing two passages, sort of a secular one, or one from another religious tradition, and a biblical passage. We, they gave me permission to take that off the plate. So we just uh, we read a poem by Ellen Bass on Sunday. Uh, so we read from a variety of different sources, and we do not identify Jesus as the way. Uh, there are a lot of uh, churches and a movement uh, within Christianity that is getting closer to following uh, the teachings of Jesus and talking about that as the new direction to go. But we recognize that there are so many other people who poured their lives out as he did, uh, is purported to have done, uh, trying to make their place different, to make it better for people, to stretch the idea of who's included and who and to eradicate the idea of those who are not and so we just feature all of them we don't we don't privilege Jesus as a particularly brilliant leader can you give me a feel for the readings uh, the music the sound you know what what the what the substance mm -hmm. of it is uh, the service would feel sort of like a regular uh, church service our music is a uh, uh, Scott uh, my husband Scott Kearns who writes a lot of the music uh, he's a former evangelical with a lot of experience in the contemporary Christian music world so he uh, brings that sort of flavor flavor adult contemporary uh, music style to our service services. We never sing anything that 
you don't understand because it's cloaked in third century theology, none of that. We do use traditional hymns, uh, but we have rewritten all the words for those when uh, we've had the copyright permission to do so. So it, it may look a lot like a regular church service. Our time when we gather together to in what we used to call community prayer time is now called community sharing. And people offer into the space uh, their delights, what's happened in the last week that, or month that has put them on top of the world, and they offer those really difficult paths that they happen to be walking on. And uh, we sort of, I speak of that as weaving ourselves more deeply into community. Greta Vosper, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. It's been a delight. Thank you, Mary. In the same way, AA's Toronto intergroup debacle acted with fear and hostility and lacking the perspective of looking at the future and asking, what do people want and need, and how can we accommodate them? The United Church is painting itself into the same corner. What would it take for the United Church, or any church, to move from the average parishioner age of late 60s to the average age of people just outside the door. It would take something controversial. It would take something radical, something like an atheist minister committed to doing good deeds within the church and not being crucified for her beliefs. According to Christian's own folklore, there was another rebel, oh, about 2,000 years ago, who didn't toe the party line, who put people and deeds ahead of obedience and dogma. The character in this drama, Pontius Pilate, was faced with the dilemma of what to do with a man who had committed no crime, but the general public had turned on and demanded blood. Even 2,000 years ago, according to Christian scripture, some Jews followed Jesus and some dismissed him as a fool. He was seen to be an anarchist, a threat to the establishment. I have to admit right now that I found Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar way more compelling from a storytelling point of view than I did Catechism. I like his depiction of the tragic pilot who was just doing his job, in his mind just trying to satisfy everyone's best interest, but he ended up being cast by history as the villain. I'm not painting Greta Vosper as a modern-day messiah, and I assure you neither would she. But if the church is successful at casting her out, will the next generation look at the deeds of this supposedly progressive church as doing something purifying, or will they judge the United Church with the same disdain we cast upon homophobia, misogyny, racism today? Indulge me for a minute, while well, a minute 30, uh, as we extract something from my vinyl collection. It's nostalgic. This is a little something from Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's a minute 30 called Pilot's Dream, foreshadowing his fate. I dreamed I met a Galilean, a most amazing man. He had that look you very rarely find The haunting, haunted kind 
I asked him to say what had happened, how it all began. I asked again, he never said a word, as if he hadn't heard. And next, the room was full of wild and angry men. They seemed to hate this man. They fell on him and then disappeared again. Then I saw thousands of millions crying for this man. And then I heard them mentioning my name and leaving me the blame. Power always thinks it has great soul and vast views beyond the comprehension of the weak, and that it is doing God's service when it is violating all his laws. John Adams, 1735 to 1826, he was the United States' second president. As Greta Vosper is trying to frustrate the United Church into the 21st century, uh, Adams brought the U.S. into the 19th century. He was uh, president from 1791 to 1801. Power always thinks it has a great soul and vast views beyond the comprehension of the weak and that it's doing God's service, but it's violating all his laws. John Adams refers to uh, power thinking it is above the weak that it is doing God's service while violating his laws. I don't know if he was drawing from Scripture, from Psalms, from Matthew. The Old and New Testament is full of blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So blessed are the humble, the right-sized, the questioning, the seeking. They hold the keys to the kingdom, according to Scripture. In the case of both Greta versus the religious authority and Mark, versus medical authority, these rebellious individuals make truth their higher purpose, not authority. Worshipping tradition or popular opinion seems to create false idols, and bowing before them seems to be fated. In the case of how 12-step, 12 traditions fellowships are structured, there is no central authority. The group is the highest authority in AA, for example, and the group holds no power over its members. The elders hold no power over the group. Only the collective consciousness of the groups guide the groups. And anyone who disagrees with the authority of the group, well, they can go start their own group. They need no one's approval. All one needs is another like-minded individual. One person does not a group make. So two or more can constitute a group. That's enough for today, I think. Thank you, Mark Lewis, for spending some time with us and uh, writing another great book, The Biology of Desire and Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, both great reads. Good luck to Greta Vosper and the United Church and to everyone who is helping irritate society into embracing our 21st century. And thank you, listeners. Uh, now it's your turn. Uh, should you wish to have your say on Twitter, Facebook, or if you're old school, news at rebelliondogspublishing.com. 
Again, uh, we will have links to Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, to Greta Vosper's books, to Tapestry on CBC, and of course, Mark Lewis and uh, his books as well. Thanks for joining us on Rebellion Dogs Radio. If you're moved to bark back, Rebellion Dogs is listening.